It has been an honor and a privilege to know Charlie Crockett and to get to watch his star rise. If you're a fan of Charlie's music, then we have that in common. But my appreciation for the man goes a little bit deeper. You see, I met Charlie in the summer of 2009 at a small open mic in Astoria back when I was giving stand-up comedy a shot. Shortly after we met, he had put out word that he was looking for a place to crash short-term at the exact same time that one of my roommates was going out of town for a month and looking to sublet. Serendipity fucking doodah, right? It was during that month we lived together and he bestowed me with my nickname. He call out from the other room, Yo, Beasy, get in here and listen to this shit. And listen, I fucking did. Crockett is a self-taught musician, like myself. And watching him win over audiences with his passion and poetry, despite his lack of technical polish at the time, that's what inspired me to wade into the waters of music. Now, becoming a musician is what led me to meet my future wife, Deb Zepp, months later at, at another open mic. Now, it's, I will say it's very likely that in another iteration of the universe, I met Deb as a stand-up comic, and she is the one who inspired me to become a musician. But in this one, that honor goes to Charlie. And, you know, I also, I have to give Charlie credit for the fact that he suggested that I put on a house show back when I was living in this quasi-legal apartment in Brooklyn. And that show eventually evolved into my atypical variety show, uh, the BZ Douglas Carnival, which I continue to produce at my house in Cleveland. If you're in town and listening to this, come by for the next one on Friday, September 21st, featuring next week's guest, Curtis Eller. So over the years, Charlie and I have remained close even when we're not in proximity. I caught up with him when he rolled through Cleveland back in May as part of what he described as a never-ending tour. Uh, it's promoting his new album, Lonesome as a Shadow, and I'm happy to report that Charlie is riding a rising wave of well-earned success. Now be sure to follow him on Instagram at Charlie Crockett. Check out his website for tour dates. And here's a little uh, moment from back when we first started playing and hanging out at Lucky Jack's Mike Club in New York City circa 2011 and then we'll jump right on into the interview. It ain't my best life, but I'm gonna take it. It ain't where you come from, but how you make it. I know you see, you see what I mean. Something I'm good at, which is tune this guitar to something else. 
How long has it been since our last podcast, man? It had to be four years ago, probably. Yeah. Right? Four or five years ago. You so, look you look good, man. Thank you. You look damn good. I'm loving the... You really have just, like, embraced the style. Yeah, man. Is that is that part of the fun of where you're at now? Just, like, crafting the whole character from front to back? I don't know, man. I just come home to... Texas and been living in Austin and playing down there and I just grew into my cowboy boots I guess you know I just I never I never wore cowboy boots when I was younger uh and I didn't think I'd want to and then I put a I made a mistake and put a pair on one day and it's the only kind of shoes I ever wore ever since yeah so I kind of like the fact that you and I we had the whole we had that whole podcast just kind of like where you came up, where you came from. Yeah. And I like that. Uh, and I'll, if I, you know, when I put this out, I'm going to put in the footnotes, like here's the precursor to this conversation where we cover all sorts of shit. Yeah. I just want to pick up where we left off cool. because you've made such a cool journey. Mm-hmm. And um, so like what, just getting to like the present, what point of the tour are you on right now? And where do you have to go from here? Well, I put out Lonesome as a Shadow on uh, April 20th, 420. And uh, the album release show was at downtown Dallas at the Majestic Theater. And I've been on the road promoting it ever since. So 
now we at uh well it's after midnight so it's may 27th now we just played the beachland ballroom here in cleveland in the in the in the hall there in the back which i really enjoyed that room is i really like the way that room sounds uh and uh we driving out of here tonight got to get down to winston-salem north carolina and do the uh Gears and Guitar Festival with uh, Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires playing it. Nice. So we play there tomorrow afternoon, I think. Or about, we play at 6 o'clock. What's what's the end point for this tour? Well, the boys are going, so we're going to play that festival tomorrow. And those boys are going are to go home for a couple of days. But I'm going to Nashville, actually. Uh, I'm going to Nashville to, uh, I think I'm going to cut some demos with uh, Dan Arbach at his studio. So I'm gonna hang out with him on uh, Tuesday at his studio. Then I gotta fly from Nashville to Northern California. Me and my girl are gonna go see about an old beat up farm out in the country out there. We're gonna go take a look at it and see what they got going on. Nice. And uh, then I fly back just in time to play in Oklahoma City at the Criterion on uh, Friday night with the Turnpike Troubadours. So for me, it don't end. Yeah, we do that OKC show, and then we head out. Then we head straight out west. Right. So it's really a never-ending tour. This one, <laughs> I like it like that. I guess. What's What's uh, been your favorite gig so far on this this leg of the tour? Is there anything that stood out? Like what that was really the crowd was good, or uh, tonight was really a very special. The room did the work. It sounded so good in there. Well, I I told you I spent the time with some of your fans, and you had people came here from cincinnati which is a three four hour drive oh is it i don't even know yeah it's cool. it's a hall and that amazes me that and he and he was very much like you got to tell charlie like there's these places he can book in cincinnati that like they'll he'll get a crowd and this I and that appreciate like, that i'd like i think i'd like to play cincinnati yeah. and then another another couple i talked to outside uh they follow you from upstate new york and for whatever reason, this gig was easier for them to get to than. See, I don't even understand that. I can't believe they drove down here. <laughs> Man. Yeah, so you got you got people coming from all over to catch you. So let me, I want to kind of ask you about the change-ups you've had in your career as a performer. What's it like going from being more solo to having a full fleshed out band? Because mm. even when I saw you a year ago, you know, it's just you and Charlie Mills. And I know you've done bands, but it seems like you've really found something that gels mm. this time. And how has that come about for you? Or what was the process of getting going from solo performer with your your thing and the way you bang it out too? Like you were not classically trained. You kind of taught yourself on guitar, I feel like. Oh yeah. And how does that work going from do you have to find musicians who are comfortable with someone like you? Yeah, exactly. Because I imagine there's there's something lost in translation, or maybe there's just difficulty in the translation when you're you're dealing with musicians who are like classically trained. Oh, and they, yeah. they know the the techniques and they expect the sort of direction versus like people who just feel it. I definitely taught myself by ear. You know, over a long period of time, you've known me a long time. You've seen me doing it. Um, so you know, I spent a lot. I spent a number of years playing by myself. Picking up a whole mess of stuff from people from playing down in them subway cars to in you know, platforms to New York City or just you know 
any old place in America, I was hoboing around. I'd learn some songs off people. I spent a lot. Of, I spent a lot of time learning just music and playing by myself. The transition that allowed me to get from that street place by playing isolated like I was to uh, what I'm doing now, touring full time, you know, and kind of a more professional aspect of it. It really was for me the big transition was. Uh, I mean, I had street bands. That thing I was doing, the train robbers thing in New York, was definitely kind of a band where I had, you know, there was four or five guys playing all the time, even if we didn't have like a full rhythm section or anything. Um, but that was still really kind of, it was all street stuff. When the transition really came from when I started pushing my way on stages at blues jams. Blues jams were the were really how I learned how to play with a band. And I, yeah, yeah I got up. And, you know, it was like New, or New Orleans was all over America. I did it this way where uh, sometimes I got on stage and the stuff I was doing worked really well, you know, and, you know, I couldn't tell the other musicians what I was wanting to do. I'd just start playing. And uh, some guys wouldn't like that, especially if they didn't know where I was going. And it might it might kind of fuck the night up for them or mess it up and they wouldn't want me to come back in there. Uh, that happened at a place <clears throat> first time I ever got on stage at BMC, a joint in New Orleans. The first time I ever got on stage, I took my street band on there and there was a rhythm section and it was just the right kind of night where what we did worked in it for three songs and it was a hit and the audience loved it and they invited us back. The next time they invited us back, we were in a different place and we tried some different stuff and the whole jam fell on its face and the place got cleared out and we got in a fight with the sound man, the cops got called. Oh, Need, needless to say, we didn't get up that, back on that stage for a long time. Um, but then there was another place across town in New Orleans, down at a uh, Saint Rock Tavern, and I was playing with this boy JD Hill. And uh, I used to just come in off the street from playing on Decatur in the quarter during the day, and I come in there and play the blues jam on Monday nights. And uh, JD Hill, and then no matter what little funky stuff I was playing, they just understood me yeah. and always were able to make me sound better. Um, and it was through guys like that that I started teaching myself blues numbers or learning how to write blues stuff that I could tell a band to follow really easily so that we'd be successful. And I could that's when I really started learning how to take my songs around and getting in with any band and kind of leading the band and, and being like, well, let's start with a blues number that they know or would be a really easy um, kind of blues standard and get it warmed up and get them used to me and then I could start doing some of my other stuff yeah. and it would be more receptive to what I was doing. Um, I put my band together that I have now basically by an extension of the blues clubs by moving from playing the jams to starting holding down the, the, the being the band that was holding down like a full net at, a, at, a, at, a, at that same bar different night of the week. Right. And that's how I got up with Alexis Sanchez that's playing, you know, guitar with me now, playing lead guitar. Mayo, uh, Mario Valdez, same way we all met on those blues jams, actually. And that was in that Deep Ellum kind of Dallas circuit. Mm -hmm. And I developed that bar band blues thing playing four hours a night, you know, and sometimes I do two or three gigs a day like that around those beer joints in Texas. Uh, then I started putting more and more of my songs in and recording and uh, got out on the circuit. You got a grind now going, yeah. playing playing music. What song do you never get tired of playing right now? I'll tell you a song I never get tired of playing ever since I learned it. We did it tonight. It was that slow blues number, uh, Out of Bad Luck. 
Magic, that's a Magic Sam song, that real burning one that we did. I never get tired of playing that one. We've been playing that one for the last four or five years. Uh, Bob Mirabis through Shane. I never get tired of playing that one, too. I played that yeah, one. Yeah. I, you know, I learned that one in the street in New Orleans. Made I me a lot of money. I remember that one. Still pays me. One, two, one, two, three, four. I'm here, Mr. Shane. Please let me explain. I'm here, Mr. Shane. Ain't that your grand? I'm here, Mr. Shane. Again, I'll explain. It means that you're the fairest in the land. I'm not going to get any hassle from your label if I play some some of your tracks, right? No. You'll, you'll, no. you'll call them down. Uh, well, that's, you know, I'm my own label. Son of, da- Son of Davey is, is my label, and I'm partnered with uh, 30 Tigers. So what do you think of the trajectory of your career? Mm. And I, I think it's really fascinating how you went home. You went back to move forward. Yeah. But you had to go out. You went out there. You went out to New York. You went out to New Orleans. You know, you're in, but it seemed like when you went back to Dallas and like, I'm going to build my base. You know what happened, man? It was an accident, really. I didn't intend to move back to Texas. I really didn't. You know, I was living out there way out on the farm in Northern California. You know, and I had, I feel like I put myself through maybe three times more or four or five times more than I maybe, you know, than I expected I would by all them years, spending my entire 20s playing in, in the streets and rambling like I did. Felt like I lived several lives doing it that way. 
So I was out there in that long, I was just like on a long sabbatical out there. But uh, in that isolation, being out on the rural farms way out there in Northern California, I just eventually, man, this nagging thing just came back in my head and was like, man, I know in my heart that I have to go back to Texas to get this, th if I ever expect to be heard more than just, you know, the lost mystery of these kind of street tapes that I had left behind in yeah. the trail behind me these years, you know? So you're right, man. I, I felt like I had to go back into a part of my life that I thought maybe I would never revisit in order to be heard. Um, and now four or five years have passed since making that decision. And, um, it's changed my life and given me an audience, you know, compared yeah. to where I was before. I mean, you talk about if you, you were to pull aside 24 year old Crockett, you know, almost 10 years ago, 10 years grinding ago. it out in New York. Would you say like, no, man, you want to be doing this or yeah, keep on your going. Like, do you feel like there's, there was wasted time in the way that you approach things or is it just the hard lessons that need to be learned and you learn them the right way by yeah. learning them hard? Well, I have always been a late bloomer my whole life. You know, I just always have always been a late bloomer. Always takes me a, a lot longer than a lot of people to pick up certain things. And I feel slow because of that. But then I'm the type of person that after people have written me off and I grasp something, then all of a sudden I just take off. And that's always been how it's worked for me. And uh, so the answer is no, I wouldn't do a thing different because that's where I got my grit. That's where I really, I'm only just now feeling like I'm really starting to sing with the soul that that I'm finding this deeper layers of yeah. soul in me as I'm getting older um, that I you, never knew I had. When I notice you've come back to some old songs. Uh, what is it? Uh, How Long Will It Last? Yeah. And Oh So Shaky. I remember Oh So Shaky. That was just kind of a lick. Yeah. You ripped, you, you ripped out with the train robbers and you, you built... But those two songs, I remember hearing earlier incarnations of them. Yeah. And how did they come to be the way they are now? Was that you kind of reflecting on them and changing them up? Or did someone say, you know, you should try that song this way? No, nah, it's just uh, them floating out in my consciousness. You know me well, man. You know, i never written anything down. So all those songs are just kind of floating around in my head and they rotate through and... um both of those tunes, Oh So Shaky and How Long Will I Last, they just kind of popped back in my head right b before I was going to record in Memphis over there at Sam Phillips. And uh, any tune like that that sticks with me over the years, in my mind, I figured, well, that's probably a pretty good song. And um, I got so many of them floating out there like that. I just want to take another crack at them. And those are two that I'm particularly uh, happy with how they got committed to wax on this last record. I'm, I'm really proud of that. I'm glad that you noticed. I appreciate you. I appreciate you noticing that. Yeah. Those, you know, I wrote how long will I last after I got out of that crazy record deal in New York city, you know, that we've talked about. I wrote that song when I was still squatting. It was the last day I was squatting out in that warehouse over there at 286 on uh what was that on Montrose? Montrose or Morgan. I think it was on Montrose. Yeah. Uh, I was so depressed. I was so sad. I had put so much time into the street. And uh, I felt like I personally made 
a decision that was best for me by walking away from that deal because it was just so far from what my heart was into. But it was hard because that scene that we talk about, that we existed in back then, those people thought I was just afraid of success or like scared of the big time. And it was hard to be viewed that way when in reality I felt like I had made the best decision for my music, you know, which I which is how I got here. Yeah. I wrote How Long Will I Last as a, that was like, that's how I was feeling. Like, how long am I going to last? You know, that nearly knocked me out. I nearly, that nearly, you know, that nearly knocked me out of music, man. It was, uh, it was so hard on me. Um, and that's, anyway, that song come back to me now. And back then I was playing them. It was a much heavier, very dark kind of blues song. Um, now I'm doing it. It has a little bit of happier sound to it. It's a little more of like a 60s kind of. Yeah. Soul kind of doo wop. Almost well, the the melon the melancholy or the the desperation is in the lyrics. Yes. So it's kind of a nice juxtaposition. That's the, the music's secret. a little well, that's more the upbeat. To, that's the spin the secret. The bitter I think, and the, the bitter and the sweet is you know back in the day, man. These artists were forced to push their sorrow through the major key because that up tempo kind of happy stuff was the only thing the label people wanted to hear. That's the only thing yeah. they wanted to record. So if you were an artist stuck in that situation. You were forced to channel all your sorrow through the major key. It is and always has been a very plastic business. And there's a very big difference between the people recording you and marketing it versus the people doing it. Sometimes that makes some amazing music, that, that pressure, that friction between those parties with those different views. So sometimes, you know, a lot of great music's come out of it for, for out of the uh, struggle, I guess. <laughs> Darling, how long, how long will I last? Oh, darling, how long, how long will I last? Ain't got no future, I ain't got no past. These people just continue. To stare and grin These people just continue To stare and grin Now I know they smiling But that don't make them my friend Nobody want me Time to be leaving this desert of town. All I got's my past. How long will I last? People only say what you want to hear these days. People only say what you want to hear these days. You ain't got to put up with it People got wicked, wicked ways Nobody want me around Think I've been leaving This sad little town All I got my past 
is an elusive thing from what I could tell you know it's like Chuck Berry was one of those guys where later in his life when they were interviewing him stuff they would all comment on how he amazingly he seemed to be completely unaware of his fame almost it's like he didn't even realize what his reach was um I don't, sometimes I don't know what I got going on out here you know I'm just I'm, you know, I'm out on the road and I'm playing, I'm playing show to show. And, you know, there really is a, there's a, there's a, there's a canyon. There's a divide between the scene and the people listening to you. It's not the same people, you know, to go back to that whole thing. Like we played at the Mercury Lounge and all those people that we knew from all those open mics and that whole circuit and all that kind of stuff. That was all a scene. You know, those aren't people that actually buy tickets. I don't know, man. In a way, it's like, I don't even know what fame, I don't even know what it means, you know? And I'm in a funny place right now because it's like, I'll go to Texas and just come off a run where I played a bunch of small little venues. You know, only people who know I am are the few people that come to the show to see me. Outside of that, nobody recognized me. And then I come down to Texas we're playing a show at a place I've never been to for, before, and I'm coming off a place where maybe we drew 75 people in a town way far from Texas. And then we get to the venue, and it's a 300 cap, and I found out that it sold out ahead of time. And, then you know, that shocks me because then the next thing you know, I'll be in St. Louis, you know, on a Thursday night. We played at the Off-Broadway, you know, and there were like 60 people in there. Um, you know, or then I went up to Chicago, and I'm thinking – you know, I just come from St. Louis. I'm like, man, I wish I had twice as many people there. Ain't nobody going to know me in Chicago. And I got people driving past me up on the street hollering that they love my music in Chicago. And I, so it's one of those things where it's like, sometimes I feel like I'm completely anonymous. And other times it's like, you know. Well, I think you right now you're in the right kind of fame. Like the, the only people are going to know you, they're deep fans. Ooh. There's that, there's that level of fame where... Just you're ubiquitous. People know of you, and it's like, hey, you're that. I've never listened to your music. But you're that guy. You know, I think you're that right level of like anyone that's gonna stop you and be like, they're a deep fan. Yeah, I like, they're not just they're just not just a star fucker. Like, I like well, oh, there's at. a guy yeah. that people know me, and I think you're you're in a good place. But you're definitely you're elevated beyond anyone I've known from the scenes we've come up in, in terms of like just seeing like all these people coming out to see you who discovered you organically through Facebook or, you well, know, certainly way and I've you're, and whoever's, it. whoever's putting your shit out is doing it right. I mean, you had three major tracks released on what, like billboard rolling stone and, and other outlets that, yeah. um, well, I, I I've had friends team, in the industry yeah. that I talked to you about, that like run different, like music promotion things. Mm -hmm. And I said like, Oh, there's this friend of mine, Crockett. He's doing really good. I told him like years ago about you. And then they get a press release about you from the right agency. And then they're emailing like, hey, didn't you tell me about this guy? I'm like, yeah. Like, well, he must be good because these people are sending out his shit. Well, yeah, man. If you don't <laughs> – if those people ain't sending out your shit, man, you're going – it's a harsh reality. 
You know, you got to you got to get to that level where you got these people in these key positions that, you know, put a certification on you, which is why I though it maybe I've been tired many times from the long winding road that I've taken, but uh that means everything to me that somebody would have heard about me through you, brother. What, 8 years ago or 9, 10 years ago and then they get a press release fax at an office and they're like wait a second is this that guy you know like honestly man that's you know i've achieved what i'm out here to achieve really so if i can get if i can give me a if i can give me a 20 acre farm where we can raise hogs and have chickens and grow our own food man and i could keep the band on the road man i'm that's that's where i want to be there's someone i'm gonna email you that's what we gonna do maddie finn so local we found here shortly after we moved here. Oh, cool. Amazing voice. She's actually she Deb hired her as a vocal coach and it's been pretty cool. Okay. That but a she's lot. a gigging musician and she's got that great grounded perspective of just like, you know what I need? I need to figure out how to make just fifty thousand a year. Mm. I can live fine on fifty thousand I can have a great life. Yeah, if you could take that home over the cause this is expensive. This is a it's very expensive to be on the road with a team. If you could take home fifty grand after costs of the end of each year, you are you are winning in this business, my friend. Yeah, and I salute anybody doing that. Um, it's a good goal. That's a good way to look. If somebody's looking at it that way, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. No, as I said, it's very grounded. It's like you, you know, if your eye. That's I ask about the fame thing because I feel like too many people going into acting, music, the performing arts, they might think like, oh, I want that, or they might realize it's incidental, but. There's a cost with that. Man, I knew I was going to have to move mountains from the beginning. I knew I was going to have to move mountains because I knew I I knew I was too strange coming at it from such a singular way of teaching myself that that alone on top of not being able to have the gear or you know, have a steady place to live and a band and a rehearsal space and you know, booking a gig at all these places in New York City that are set up, you know, and you got to play the game that way. And, you know, they count people, how many people come in the door for you. And if you don't get 30 people or, or whatever it is, you ain't allowed to play there for six months or whatever. You know that game. Um, or you get booked at a place like BB King's, you know, and you think you made it. And then you got to, then they, then you owe them the money and you got to sell the tickets to get the money back and stuff. You know, I've seen all those games in every way, man. I mean, that, is a losing game to play. And so I, I, because I couldn't play it, I did it the only other way I knew how, which was just to straight up play in front of people in public places. And you know, that's all I've ever done. You know, that's all I've ever done. So, you know, I had to figure out the amplification thing and learn how to lead a band and stuff. But when I'm on stage and stuff, it's like, if I'm like forgetting where I'm at or feeling ungrateful for a second or frustrated with my situation, man, I could just immediately put myself sitting at a bus stop in Bushwick playing a guitar, waiting on a bus that, you know, ain't coming. <laughs> you know, going across town, coming back to your place or going over there to Khadijah, Everett and Khadijah's and Clinton Hill, you know. And, you know, I got to the point now, but this is really the truth, brother. You know, I have a hard time going to the subway these days because I spent so much time down there when I was younger. Now when I'm in New York, I like I just like staying above ground. I think about all the the years I spent under you know subterranean 
homesick blues. You know, that's a, you know, and I did that. In, I did it in Paris too. I was on. I played down there in the subways in Paris a lot too. <laughs> you know, and I, I don't know. I like the sunshine. Headed down to Texas At the land that I love It's the only place I'm ever Ever thinking of I won't cry Cry, darling Ooh, I won't cry Them five white cranes were falling And nothing gone down Painted such a pretty color On this long come down And I won't cry Cry, darling Ooh, I won't cry surprised you or been uh enlightening about finding out what the actual revenue stream for a working musician like yourself is it is it album sales is mm. it selling tickets and live shows because i mean when you're busking on the train platforms it's the dollar in your in your case yeah or in your pocket um but at where you're at now is it you know like is Spotify relevant? Is it more about like I want to sell albums when I play a live show, or I want to sell tickets? Well, what? It, what? It, mm. Or are you just? I don't want to think about that. And someone tells me if I hit if I hit the marks. No, man. I mean, I have to think about it because I started out the in the the most simple form of the way that this is a business that you stand behind the guitar and you play for folks and they pay you if they like it. It never changes. Only more politics from that point to this point. It really is only more politics. There's just more people involved. But it all comes down to me standing behind that guitar and putting on a show. And that's how the, that's what really fuels all of it. And one thing I'm going to say, contrary to popular belief, a lot of these artists, but these artists out here talking about Spotify ruining their shit and all this, man, they people that ain't out on the road. They don't know what the hell they talking about because... I got young people, old people, 
people all walks of life popping into these shows. Just tonight, a girl was in here with her boyfriend and said, I found you on Spotify two days ago. That's the goddamn truth. Because I hear that so I, often. You know, I go, I go. You think Spot- I'm gonna, you no, think I'm I gonna go, deny that? I, you think I'm gonna deny that? I go Spotify surfing. That, that I vehicle? will go to an artist I like, and then look like I'm like I want to find something new, and I'll go to related artists. Yeah, man. And I'll just see. I haven't heard of them. I'm gonna listen to them. I'm gonna, or yeah, Spotify will throw something into your, like if you listen to like their daily mixes and stuff like that. But yeah, it may not be like you don't get direct revenue from Spotify. But the accessibility well, has got to be used. Them, well, you do. They but do, I mean, you, you know. also like you. Someone discovers you through it, and oh, it's man. like you don't get a you, you don't get a direct that, dollar man. from Spotify on that. Yeah, you can't quantify it. But that's someone who shows up to your shows yes. and becomes a fan because of the ease of discovery. Spotify is it? Spotify isn't important based on its numbers, like the numbers that it shows, the plays that an artist has, the monthly listeners. Blah, 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 yada, yada. That's all really skewed. skewed. You know what you never hear when you talk about like uh, streaming analytics? It's like Nielsen ratings. Remember, like those were the ratings they had, but they were not accurate. They were very skewed. They're still not fucking accurate. They never were. And Spotify by no means is a true and accurate measure of where an artist is. And one reason that's a positive one is you can't quantify the awareness that Spotify creates for you because not everybody's checking in on that motherfucking thing. They're not checking in on it, you know? And it's like, I have, I mean, I don't have the power to stop Spotify from being around. And Lord knows in a, my position, especially where I was two years ago, if 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 a, if an avenue like that disappeared, who would want to be in a digital world where there's hardly anything tangible to sell, you know? And I mean, and like, ain't, can't nobody look you up in no phone book or, you know, these ain't the days of Tom Petty where you drove to L.A., pulled open the phone book and cold called all the labels and (laughs) got a meeting, you know, it don't work like that at all. You know? And like, you can't really even be seen as soliciting yourself to these people that represent you. They got to find you or they got to feel like they discovered you. Yeah. Which is why you got to put yourself out there on all them outlets and you got to, it's got to be all about the live show, you know? And And there's a ton of people in this game that are doing all of the, marketing things getting their pictures together um booking shows hiring management all this kind of stuff and it's like the live show is like an afterthought you know or it's like you know i see a lot of acts you know that running around out here and people are praising them and stuff and i think it's a it just sounds like a bunch of generic indie rock bands a lot of the music that i hear out there you know but they're dressing old school and uh you know confident and whatever you know and and there should be all that too because out of that whole it's always been like that every era you know like in the 30s when they were when blues was the stuff that was on the radio like in in the 1930s the stuff that dominated the charts isn't the blues stuff that we champion today it was a bunch of cheesy folks that hardly anybody remembers unless you're like a historian robert johnson and charlie Patton, you know and, and all those guys man they weren't on the radio you know, later society looked back at them and dubbed them kings. Society looked back and said this was the important music that was completely obscure during its day, which is not, which is an effect that's not lost on me. You know, and that's like what is difficult, I think, as you get people paying attention to you and there's this thing that starts coming with fame. There's also that trajectory you got to watch out for where it's just, it, it can become just more and more commercial rather than you really recording that good music because 
history will choose very different artists to look back at as authenticity than what the charts in the industry is choosing yeah. for right now. Well, I mean, I, I've told your story a lot about the fact that, you know, the reason you walked away from the deal you have with the train robbers is just the fact that they're like, okay, we like what you're doing there. We're going to package you as exactly that. They just wanted to pluck our, they just wanted to pluck our talent and plug it into their yeah. moldable uh, program, you know, on the mainstream. Yeah. And I mean, well, they wanted to package you, yeah, turn you into a product. And and if it happens to work by like, accident, you're going to be stuck with that. Like, and you just had the foresight to be like, you know what? A better product is if I just, I can just goddamn be myself. Yeah. How, to what degree have you found that you've had to let go of um, being directly involved with like your social media, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram? Is that all handled by other people or? No, nah, man, that hasn't changed too much. Um, I still direct all of that. I, my, my manager, JR, helps me with a lot of stuff. I mean. It's impossible to be out here on a road 85% of the time and still continue to wear all the hats all the time. I like to think that I'm dynamic in presenting myself, so I really, it's very important to me that everything from the posters that come out or like to the pictures they want to use of me for venues and everything. I mean, I'm writing all my songs. I'm choosing how to arrange them and everything. So, so you, have, you keep say over... Your image and your marketing. Yeah, everything. Nice. I've been able to do that, and I own everything. I own my masters and I own my publishing and all that, you know. And, you know, I'm sure if I, you know, gave my publishing away quickly with the right people or whatever, you know, you deal like that, I could, you know, maybe I'd be better known than I am at this moment, but I'm very happy with the But you could have more money. Yeah, yeah, more money, more problems, you know. And in this business, it's really true, man. I mean, the bigger the place you're playing, the more you got to deal with, you know. I'm not saying that I don't want to play great theaters and all that kind of stuff, but, like, it's like a it's a middle-class illusion that more money means happiness. I'm not trying to sit here and harp on this too much, but it's like, no, no, no. you know, the truth is is that, you know, the more, the more money that you're dealing with, man, just it's the more – stuff that's got to happen you know the bigger the venue you got to deal with the insurance and the security and all this kind of stuff so at the end of the day you know i mean you could have the biggest operation in the world and the artist is you know just running on a wheel you know and you ain't you don't own anything Could understand Maybe I 
I feel like you and I bonded a lot over the political problems mm. the United States was going through when we met. And that was back in like 2009. Yeah. And, I, and I know mm. that you were much more animated by politics. And I feel like you've let some of that go. Not, not, not as a criticism. More that like you stopped making it so on the nose in what you're well, on your lyrics. Because... I, be, I fail to believe that you're not still as passionate about the state of the world as you were back then, but I feel like you're taking a different tack than when I first met well, you. Well, I absolutely am passionate about it, you know, but I'll tell you, to be aware of the truth in these modern times is to be constantly enraged, you know? Um, it's been said, you know, Come on, man. All the, They've been actors for generations. They've all been actors for generations. And even the Americans that are falling in love with the cult personality of Trump, God knows how they do. I don't understand. Uh, you know, I think the Obama administration was corrupt too, but I'd rather look at his ass than Trump, no question. You know, Obama is actually a well-spoken person. What we're looking at, you know, running a war machine. Now it's very it's a very brash thing and anyway we just watch it turn back and forth and you know the democrats mobilize a very specific base whereas the republicans also mobilize a very specific base um you know they all been reading teleprompters for generations it's a it's a it's a joke to me um and i think it's a joke to a lot of people to vast majority of Americans, I think, know it in the back of their minds, even the ones going along with it. What are you going, what are they going to do? You know, what are they, what, what are they going to do? You know, because it's like these wars over here, these wars are being fought, you know, so that we can drive down the highway and blast AC and no one's going to stop us from doing it. And I could just buy all these one-time use packages and throw them away over and over again. You know, it's like everybody in this country, one way or another is somehow supporting we're not owning our culpability that system nah man americans really don't want to do that you know on any level you know and it's hard because well they got us so sewn up in the way that everybody's so divided and compartmentalized um that's really hard for me to watch yeah it's very hard for me to watch 
America's kind of got to play itself out at this point is where I'm at with politics. Powerful people assert their power by taking advantage of the ideas that lie around at the time. And that's all that we're seeing, you know. Vietnam, you know, Vietnam wasn't about spreading liberty. And in fact, them teaching us that it was and that we lost that war is them hiding the truth yet again. And it's, a, it's, an, ama it's an amazing... It's an amazing tool, you know? I mean, Stokely Carmichael said that, you know, in reference to Martin Luther King, and I'm always torn because Martin Luther King is so important to me, but I also understand a lot of the more radical, or he was very radical in my opinion, obviously, but there was, you know, it's like, he was out there using peace as resistance, believing that if you put that in front of America, the powers that be in America, they would be forced to have to see it and their conscience would cause them to have to do something about it. And that's amazing, you know, that's what Stokely Carmichael said. He said, he said, man, that's very good. So the only mistake that he made was believing that America has a conscience.
Thank you. 